0: In 2021, Zakiya Dalila Harris's debut novel, The Other Black Girl, took off, topping summer reading lists. Now it's set to become a new Hulu TV series. The novel tells the story of a young Black woman working in a mostly white publishing house, and it was inspired by Harris's own experiences.
1: I was in the bathroom at work washing my hands at the sink and another black woman came out of the stall next to me. We're both in this very white publishing house. At the time I was the only black woman working in an editorial and so you know seeing her was really exciting. Um but there's just no kind of acknowledgement, nothing. I thought more about how I had been so hungry for an interaction. I thought about how I had been raised to nod at other Black people when we're in spaces like mostly white spaces or in places where we don't normally see other Black people. And I thought about how I had been for so long, the only one or one of very, very few Black people on the floor Uh, and just all of those feelings. And I went back to my desk and I started writing chapter
0: one in my cubicle. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, a guide for Black girls navigating mostly white spaces. Later in the show, tips for supporting teens through all the normal teenager stuff and the pandemic. A lot of teenagers are spending
1: a lot more time with their parents than they would normally do. Um, And that constrains how much they can flex their autonomy, how much they can try out things outside of the gaze of their parents, how much they can just try on
0: being new people in different places. But first, being a Black girl in a mostly white space can bring extra stress, frustration, anger, all kinds of mixed emotions. My first guests have written a guidebook called Finding Her Voice. Faye and Ivy Belgrave, along with co-author Angela Patton, have created a guidebook for Black girls navigating predominantly white spaces. Faye Belgrave is a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Her daughter, Ivy Belgrave, has decades of experience as a K-12 teacher. Faye and Ivy, this is a wonderful book and resource. What are you most proud of in this, or what do you think will be most effective for you?
2: So... When my mom came to me, approached me about writing this particular book, I was working with a group of fifth grade girls in Minnesota who were going through some really difficult challenges with teachers, with the system, and they would come to me, A, I felt helpless and B, I felt, I can't believe that I graduated from high school in the 90s and here it is 30 years later. And their struggles are the same as mine. And I've lived these years and I still don't have definitive answers to give them for when you feel as though your teacher is singling you out or what Mm -hmm. should you do if you feel this between one of your classmates and you. I still didn't have and I had all of this life experience and I still felt as though some of their situations, some of their problems, some of their strife were the same things that I went through. So I'm just really proud that we took the time because I think these things come at girls of color, women of color so frequently, and we sit around. I know I have my mom, I would call and tell her, my girlfriends, and we would talk about the problem and what's happening. So I'm just so glad that we were able to sit down and focus and say, this is a problem and like really start thinking about solutions. While I do believe there needs to be systemic changes, we know the things that we can't do, but here is what we can do right here, right now.
0: You also have a third co-author, Angela Patton. Tell me a little bit about her and her work. Yes, I've
3: known Angela Patton for many years. She is the executive director for Girls for Change, which is the national organization located here in Richmond, Virginia. And what Angela does is a number of programs for girls, mostly Black girls, from coding to summer camps to other kinds of enrichment activities and opportunities so that girls can be supported throughout their teen trajectory.
0: It feels like such a relief for young people who can realize they're not alone, that lots of people are going through the same thing. Ivy, would you read one example of something that you address in the book that you think is especially powerful for girls?
2: We have one activity, and it's under the section of communicating with parents about being Black. I think we all know that Black parents have conversations about their kids about several aspects of their identity. So it says Sasha just turned 15 and a half, which means that she and her twin brother Stephen can get their learner's permits their dad gives them lots of opportunities to practice driving one day it is sasha's turn to practice the drive to school and on the way she's pulled over by a cop her father had forgotten to put the new registration sticker on sasha immediately becomes nervous and is visibly shaken luckily her dad is in the passenger seat and handles all of the talking the officer is friendly enough and sasha is let go without even a warning but she can't get herself together afterward once they are at school, Sasha can't stop thinking about her morning ride to school. Even her friend Emily notices that she's distracted. What's wrong, Emily asks. Sasha doesn't know what to say. She doubts Emily would understand her anxiety attack caused by being pulled over. This is definitely a problem that will have to be addressed within her family and with family only. And I I chose that because... When we were writing the book, there was so much, and I was living in Minneapolis at the time, so there was just a lot of conversation about interactions with the cops. And I also chose it because there are some questions that we ask about that particular scenario, but then in our more to do, which is kind of the extension passage, we made a flowchart that I'm really proud of. And it talks about when you're interacting with law enforcement or like the first thing you ask yourself is, am I physically safe? And then if you are physically safe, how to calm yourself in that situation, taking deep breaths to calm down. And then the first question, and it comes up repeatedly through a lot of situations, is just doing a check-in with yourself. Am I emotionally able to handle this? Because I think sometimes we don't take the, just the beat that it takes, like, do I have to handle this right now? Am I emotionally sound enough in a place to handle this situation? And if the answer is no, that is okay. Like at no point are we saying that at 15, at 16, at 44, do you need to be emotionally sound enough to handle discrimination or microaggressions? And if the answer is no, like, what can you do to put yourself in the right frame of mind?
3: I I would like to share uh, one of the earlier activities in the book uh, on microaggressions because microaggressions are so insidious and pervasive. So this comes from activity two. um, And the scenario is Camilla, a 13 year old black teen lives in a predominantly white neighborhood. She has many neighborhood friends and has always liked where she lives. One Halloween, she takes her eight-year-old brother trick-or-treating. Camilla and her brother rang the doorbell of a house they had not been to before. The woman who answers the door is pleasant and generously provides them treats. And then the woman asks, what neighborhood do you live in? Camilla has conflicting thoughts. The woman had sounded polite when asking the question, but Camilla has a nagging feeling about the question. Did this woman not expect a Black family to live in their neighborhood? And so I chose that again because it shows the insidiousness of a microaggression and the fact that constantly having to question things like this creates additional stress uh, for our girls so is that ambiguity that creates this additional stress. So I felt like this happens often and 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 it becomes um an isolating experience for example if if there's no other black people in the neighborhood to bounce this idea off on.
2: I think all of the activities we always try to end on this is what you can do but we also have a good portion of the book and a good portion of each um, situation or scenario that celebrates what who you are and finding your own strength. So in the chapter, in the uh, activity, my mom just talked about, about microaggressions, um, how she said, this is not about you. Like, this is about that person being ignorant. We always we never try to cast black girls as being victims or victimized by these things that are happening. Um so uh, all of the activities end with some celebration of how you can take charge of your own personal narrative.
0: To that point, you include some homework for building a positive identity. Give me a couple of tastes of those activities.
3: One of the positive identity building exercise is to be around people that look like you. So uh, find Black role models, find Black peers, peer groups, surround yourself, or at least you may not be able to surround yourself depending upon where you live and where you go to school, but you can identify people through social media. Again, assume this has to be the appropriate type of social media so that you're not isolated from people who are similar to you.
2: We also talk a lot about not just leaning into your identity as a Black girl, but also leaning into the other aspects of your identity that bring you joy. We talk about, I think one of the activities that was really, I enjoyed doing a lot was the one on body image and talking about, I mean, I will speak for myself, but I probably speak for tons of girls and women. The time, the ages of 13 to 17, 12 to 17, there's a lot of struggle with body image. I mean, I, don't, I, mm. I can't say yeah. I know of anybody, regardless of what they look like, who hasn't at some point, especially going through puberty, had some struggles with body image. Um, and so we talk a lot about appreciating your body for all that it is able to do for you. And we talk a lot about appreciating the color of your skin and all of these things that can bring you joy instead of coming at things from a deficit or a comparison aspect or lens.
3: Yeah, and I I think the other thing when we talked about racial identity that was important to understand is the importance of knowing your ancestries, right? So we were not just enslaved in this country, but we come from ancestries of proud African people. And so we have one unit in the book where we talk about African queens like Queen Amina. So we want girls to relate to an ancestry and a past and be informed by the greatness of an ancestry that connects them to people of African descent that they can be proud of. And I I do think a lot of that has been lost in terms of our educational system. There's also a chapter in the book on academic achievement or education where we talk about great African-American leaders because, you know, a lot of us students are only exposed to Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. And there are many other important seminal African-American leaders.
2: Yeah, I think, Mom, when you mentioned like the educational system, I do think that so much of the history of our people and you know, Sarah, you're in Virginia and I know that was a big uh, conversation piece in Virginia in November, um, uh. about how American history needs to be taught. And I feel as though one of the things that gets lost, I know um even my when I taught in Georgia, which has a really rich African American history, or uh, American history, I shouldn't even have to delineate between African American and American history, a lot of the students they knew black people were slaves, then Abraham Lincoln freed them. And then there was Dr. King and there was nothing before, between or after that. Um, And we really, as we continue to encourage girls to be empowered and to take that knowledge and own that, while it doesn't to me as a teacher seem fair that we put the onus on children to have to educate themselves, we know that that's going to be something that More and more is going to have to happen as far as teachers who are willing to teach the true history of America, and then also girls who are being willing to learn that history of America and great
0: Americans. Ivy Belgrave has decades of experience as a K-12 teacher. Faye Belgrave is a professor of health psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University. Their co-author, Angela Patton, is CEO of Girls for a Change. Their book is Finding Her Voice, how black girls in white spaces can speak up and live their truth. It's two years on and the pandemic is still affecting us in new ways. Though many schools have returned to in-person learning, parents are still struggling to support their teens. Nancy Deutsch is an education professor at the University of Virginia. She shares how grown-ups can help teens create positive identities during these unprecedented times. Nancy, being a teenager has always been hard. Is it harder right now, do you think? I think it is harder right now. Um, You know,
1: being a teenager is so much about exploring and independence and identity um, and these are all things that have really been constrained during the pandemic they you know a lot of teenagers are spending a lot more time with their parents than they would normally do um, and that constrains how much they can flex their autonomy how much they can try out things outside of the gaze of their parents, how much they can just try on being new
0: people in different places, right? I'm a little confused about what online schooling has meant for teenagers because it seems many feel like, gosh, I just can't wait to be out and about and with everybody and doing my normal exploring thing. But others seem to have found it comforting to be not competing and able to be themselves. Yeah, and I think that's one of the really hard
1: things is that online schooling has meant different things for different people, right? And so the idea, I think we focused a lot on the negatives of online schooling and absolutely those exist and I definitely do not wanna minimize those. Um, But for some teenagers, online schooling has been a bit of a blessing, right? So for kids particularly who may feel marginalized, who sort of feel like they don't fit in in their school or who are experiencing some kind of, whether it's bullying or microaggressions, um, the online space has let them be a little freer, right? They can, they can focus on their learning without having to navigate the stress of those social interactions with peers. Um, or social. sometimes it's social interactions with teachers that are causing, causing the issues. And so for those kids, sometimes online schooling has actually actually worked
0: out well. So there are joys of the digital world, and certainly teenagers mm-hmm. love it and they live in it. Yeah. But how can we as parents and teachers and grownups help ensure that that experience for them is not stressful or uh, put, set them back? Yeah. Um,
1: so, you know, I think that just as there is, you know, bullying and tension and negative things in real life, that exists online too. Um, so I think as parents, you know, to me, part of it is really keeping the lines of communication open, right? And no, making sure that your kid feels comfortable coming to you and talking with you and asking them about what's going on. Um, you know, I think that there are different thoughts about how much you monitor old teenagers in particular, right? Because teenagers are looking for autonomy. They are looking for some independence. And that is normal and that is good, right? Right. Um we when we think about teenagers risk taking we often think about it as a negative thing um but if you th- if you really think about it we don't want teenagers to never take risks you would never have people leave home right teenagers you, you would you, we would never leave our homes of origin our families of origin if we weren't willing to take risks as teenagers and young adults so it's not about not providing the space for teenagers to have that independence, to have that autonomy outside of the parental view, but it's about having that line of communication and that trust where they can really come and talk to you about when something is going wrong.
0: How much a part of the teenage identity do you think is dressing oneself, deciding (laughs) who you're going to be?
1: So this is a personal question for me, because for me, all of my identity play, and I like to think of it as identity play, because I think when we're teenagers, we really are playing with our identities, right? And and it is testing out different people that we could be in the future. And so when I was a teenager, Um, You know, I joke that there are these photos of me and my high school friends where it looks like straight out of a Gap ad and then there's me in the middle wearing like leopard print spandex and a black bandana (laughs) and a black top. And it's like, where does this girl fit in with the rest of these peers? I was always testing out new ways of presenting myself, of presenting my identity. I liked to do that. And I think that's a big part of being a teenager. Um, and so, you know, there's a reason that when you think about high school, that all the high school movies has have these tropes of peer groups that are very stereotypical, right? You've got the drama kids, and you've got the jocks, and you've got the nerds, and you've got the anime group, right? And that is because teenagers are testing out who they feel like they belong with and who they're going to be in the world um and that's part of it and part of that is marking that physically as a teenager
0: you know this whole generation is exploring gender identity in ways that were less common in previous generations how can grown ups support that exploration in young children, preteens, teenagers? Yeah, that's a great
1: question, right? And I think this is a place where the generational divide is really clear. I think a lot of adults are not as comfortable with the gender identity exploration as younger kids are, right? So, for example, you know, I know that that my daughter has talked about friends and classmates who are non-binary, and it just rolls off her tongue and she doesn't think about it. And she's a nine-year-old. And she's a nine-year-old, right? Um, And so then as we think about as kids get older, and and also I want to really differentiate between kids who are trans and who are truly saying, I am uncomfortable in the gender that I was born into and socialized to be, and gender identity as saying, I am non-binary or gender non-conforming. And I will say across the board as a parent, what you want to be doing is supporting your kid in that exploration right, in saying, I understand and I support you and I want to help you figure out who it is that you feel like you are. And so for kids, you know, who are trans, those kids often know very young that they are not comfortable in their biological body, right? Um, And that's a very different thing than saying, I am sort of going to try out being gender non-binary or gender non-conforming. And not to say that there aren't kids who truly say like, no, this is really who I am. I am gender nonconforming. But I think I what I don't want to suggest that because you can try on different gender identities as a teenager, and I think that's natural and I think that's healthy. I think it's another domain of identity, Um, particularly when we think about gender as something that's really socialized, right? That like the markers that we say are male or female, those are social constructs. Why do girls have to have long hair or wear nail polish or the things that we sort of socialize as markers? And so some part of being gender nonconforming for kids and teens can be I don't really agree with the socialize with the way that you are socializing me or the way the world wants me to be a girl or a boy which is also different than saying I really think I am the other gender right and both of those for both in both cases I think the key is that parents help support kids stay open and Always ensure that your kid knows that you will love them unconditionally, that you're there for them. And particularly as kids are younger and as they're sort of exploring different identities, knowing that things can change and leaving open the pot flexibility is sort of the way I like to think about it.
0: You know, I hear from people these days who work with this age group that teenagers are dealing with anxiety at levels they've never seen before. Yes. What do you think is causing that? And are there ways we can help them?
1: Yeah, you know, the pandemic certainly isn't helping. Um, it definitely predates the pandemic, though, um, really going back the last, I don't know, decade, decade and a half. Um, We know that kids have been coming into college, for example, with higher levels of adult diagnoses and higher levels of medication for various mental health issues, um, and that teenagers are being diagnosed with mental health struggles that are more typically seen in adults.
0: Was that just we're finding it earlier and diagnosing it, or is it there's more dismay?
1: That's a good question. Um,
0: I don't know for sure, but
1: I imagine a little of both, right? I think that diagnoses have gotten better. I think we've in general gotten better at a society at seeking help earlier and, and supporting kids and seeking help earlier. But I also do think there is genuinely more dismay. Um and I think there are a number of reasons for this. Um, you know, one is that For kids from some demographic groups, the academic pressures have gotten so great, um, and there is real extreme felt pressure in those areas that cause real anxiety. Um, For other demographic groups of kids, and particularly as we think about the pandemic and the the sort of financial situations, right, there have been um, increased financial, financial difficulties of families and kids taking on that stress. There have been increases in um, illness and death, right? The pandemic disproportionately affected communities of color in terms of who was getting sick and who was dying early on. And that's something that kids also experienced, right? And then there's also a lot of trauma around violence, um, both violence in schools and actual experiences of trauma and the fear of potential violence in schools um, and in communities, right? So we know that there's also a lot of gun violence in some communities. And so the the sort of levels of stress and anxiety, and then when you add to that a pandemic and not being able to see or get social support from your friends in the same way, not knowing what the world is going to be like in a year, right? We've been in this for two years. Like, Think about what percentage of a teenager's life that is and the uncertainty of whether you'll ever get to do any quote unquote normal things. Um and then finally I do think things like climate change that are really I mean if you look at youth activism the activism around climate change and you can hear in those young activists voices the real existential dread from seeing what the world could be if if we don't change things quickly and soon um and so I think those are those are real concerns your favorite tool for helping teenagers? A good listening ear. Adults remain incredibly important for teenagers, right? We know that most teenagers actually, their values reflect those of their families, right? Most teenagers are not doing a 180 away from the values and beliefs of their families. Um, And they also still need their parents and other important adults. And also as a parent, you can really be open to encouraging relationships with other important adults in their lives and recognize that your kid might not always want to come talk to you, but if there are other adults in your network that you trust, don't, don't keep your kid from going to other adults for support. That can be incredibly helpful.
0: Nancy, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Thank you. I really appreciated this opportunity.
0: Nancy Deutsch is the Linda K. Bunker Professor of Education and Director of YouthNEX at the University of Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. On the morning of April 23rd, 1951, Students at the all-black Robert Moten High School in Farmville, Virginia, filed into the auditorium. Their teachers had been notified of a surprise assembly, but once they brought their classes in, the teachers were asked to leave. And instead of the principal standing up in front of the 450 students, it was 16-year-old Barbara Rose Johns. That day, Barbara Johns and a secret committee of other students led the entire student body on a walkout to protest their unequal learning conditions. Later, their group joined in the Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court case. But according to the Encyclopedia of Virginia, many historians say it was that student strike on April 23, 1951, that signaled the start of the desegregation movement in America. A strike dreamed up, planned, and executed by teenagers. I'm joined by Larissa Smith, provost and vice president for academic affairs at Longwood University. She's an historian and an expert in U.S. and Virginia history. She's here with Cameron Patterson. He's the executive director of the Robert Russa Moton Museum, which is housed in Barbara Johns' old high school. Larissa, who was Barbara Johns? What did she do?
4: Barbara Johns was the leader of the student walkout at the Moten High School in April of 1951. And so she was a junior at the time and conceived of an action to protest the overcrowded and under-resourced facilities that they faced and endured as students. And she... Uh, On the morning of April 23rd, uh, figured out a way to gather all of her fellow students. There were over 450 of them uh, when the school was built for 180 students. And she gathered them in the auditorium and encouraged them through a a vigorous speech to go on strike in protest of, of the inadequate facilities that they
0: endured. Cameron, is there a copy of that speech? Is there a recording of it?
5: So uh, we don't have a recording or a copy of the speech that she gave, but we are very fortunate that we have individuals who were there that day that are still with us, volunteering here at the museum, living within our community. Um, And through the recollections that they share, we were able to gain a strong sense of what uh, Barbara John said that day to her classmates. Uh,
4: one of the earliest journalistic accounts of, of what happened here in Prince Edward was uh, published in 1965 by journalist Bob Smith. And the book was called They Closed Their Schools. And it, it really is still, I think, the best one volume narrative of, of what happened here in the county from 1951 to 1964. And he uh, and what's great about it is he interviews so many of, of the participants and, and, and actually corresponded with, with Barbara Johns. And so in a letter from 1960, she writes about that morning and, and said that I do not remember exactly what I said that day, the day of the strike, but I do know that I related with heated emphasis the facts they knew to be the truth such as the leaking roofs, having to keep our coats on all day in winter for warmth, having to have the gymnasium classes in the auditorium, inadequate lunch room facilities and food, etc. My sister says that I reminded her of a politician standing on a platform denouncing the sins of his opponent and promoting his own ideas with such intensity that you automatically believed and followed instructions. I don't know about this, but I do know we mapped out for those students, our wish that they would not accept the conditions of our school and that they would do something about it. So her sister Joan was an eighth grader and was sitting in the audience the day of the strike and was surprised to see her sister on the stage. And so <laughs> it's such a it's such a great description from her sister's perspective.
0: I have a couple of clips from two people who were students with Barbara and participated in the walkout. One is from John Stokes. Who was he?
4: John Stokes was a classmate of Barbara's. He was. Uh, A leader in the class and a member of the secret organizing committee that that Barbara convened.
3: Uh, Barbara came to um, the individual that she felt could assist her in this endeavor. And um, we decided that we would help her. There were 20 of us total uh, in the group um, just before the strike took place. But Once the strike took place, of course, 450-plus students became a part of that particular nucleus. Um, that, that that created history on the 23rd of April, 1951.
5: Yeah, I think that is uh, representative of the fact that, you know, as that initial committee was coming together, that um, there was the need to ensure that you brought folks to the table that uh, were respected amongst their classmates, that could really help to uh, put these plans together Um, and work towards galvanizing uh, the remainder of the student body.
0: But it's really crazy. I mean, they were teenagers. We think of committees and planning, but they were just kids.
5: They were, um, and I think that is um, the amazing thing when you think of the creativity um, that these students had uh, to put the plans together. Um, They did this independent, of their teachers, of their parents. Um, In part, they were hoping to protect their teachers, uh, to protect their parents uh, from the feedback that they might receive from school leadership. But um, it is an amazing thing that when you think of high school students uh, putting together uh, these plans, uh, they were able to do it in a way that I think inspires this idea of collective activism. Um, You know, I love when, you know, Mr. Stokes says that the remainder of the student body becomes a part of that nucleus that they were seeking to build. And um, without this notion of collective activism, uh, without the recognition that if all 450 plus don't walk out, then um, this might not have become what it did.
4: And if I can add, I think it also we have to remember this is in 1951, so this is before young people had the the images that we all have of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. Uh, you know that that certainly there were uh, instances of direct action during World War II that as as very young people these um, students might have been exposed to, but that, you know, here you have a young Black woman in 1951 standing up on a stage and and encouraging her fellow students to go on strike. That's, that's really a remarkable moment.
0: Why was it so scary for them? What was happening at the time that would have made them hesitate?
5: You know, I think they were, you know, certainly worried about the feedback that might come to their educators, their teachers, as well as uh, their parents and guardians. Um, you know, they they wanted an equal facility. You know, they wanted the country to live up to this notion of separate but equal that had come about as it relates to Plessy v. Ferguson. Um, and I think you know it's important to note that the integration was not the initial fight. And so I think, um, you know, part of it is that they loved the environment that they went to school in. They felt that they had nurturing support from their educators. Um, They saw the fight that their parents and others were waging within the community. And so um, I think, you know, they just wanted to protect them from the feedback, from the pushback that might result
0: because they were appealing to mostly white lawmakers.
4: Well, it was it was an entirely white power structure from the the school board to the superintendent of schools to the to the county board of supervisors. And they had also known that their their parents working through the PTA had grown frustrated with the lack of action on the part of the school board to try and find property for a for a new school. So this was very much, in their minds, a, a step of, of last resort, that their parents had used all the channels that they, that they knew were available to them to try and uh, improve facilities and, and try and get them a new school. And so, so this was, in many ways, young people coming in to support the work of,
0: of adults. Were there repercussions from the white power structure?
4: There were, uh, you know, it, within a month of the uh, of the student strike, the court case had been filed, um, Davis versus Prince Edward, and um, as a result of that, the principal of Moton High School, M. Boyd Jones, his contract was not renewed. Um, John Lancaster, who was the the black agricultural extension agent in the county, who had been very involved in the PTA. Uh, his job was eliminated, and yeah. uh, and there was certainly retaliation against Reverend Francis Griffin, who uh, was headed the First Baptist Church and had credit called in and and sort of economic retaliation against his involvement with the PTA because the white power structure didn't believe that the students did it themselves. Um, They they thought, you know, the the Farmville Herald, the local paper called it mass hooky and they believed that the the parents and the PTA were behind the students and instigated them um, in, in kind of taking this action to uh, disrupt the pace of of race relations and to to push the power structure to do something and to respond. Uh, And, you know, I think too, in terms of retaliation, Barbara Johns's family received threats. Uh, they lived out in, in a community in the county called Darlington Heights. And so Barbara's parents made the difficult decision to send her to Montgomery, Alabama, to live with her uncle, the Reverend Vernon Johns, uh, to finish her high school career.
0: As director of the museum where the high school used to be, do you have people who come by who've never heard of Barbara Johns and want to learn what this 16-year-old had done back then?
5: Absolutely. Um, You know, some folks might come with that understanding that Barbara Johns led the walkout. But then when they gain that understanding of what happens during massive resistance, they're sometimes kind of shock and disbelief to learn the fullness of what happens here in Prince Edward.
0: Why is what she did ultimately important on a national scale?
4: The action here led by Barbara and taken by her fellow students, really is a, a collective act um, that leads to a court case that becomes part of the more famously known court case, Brown v. Board of Education, uh, decided by the Supreme Court in 1954 that declared segregation in public education unconstitutional. So it really was this dramatic act Um, that then led students to work through and use the levers of our democracy to make social change. You know, there there were five cases that comprised the Brown decision. And of all five cases, the Prince Edward case was the only one initiated by young people. And the students here at Moton provided 117 plaintiffs, along with their parents and their guardians. And those those plaintiffs were three-quarters of the plaintiffs in all the Brown cases.
0: You know, a statue of this 16-year-old girl is going up in the nation's Capitol building alongside George Washington. Could either of you ever have imagined, let's say even two or three years ago, that this would take place?
5: Not uh, in my wildest dreams that I think that uh, we would be at this moment. You know, I think it really speaks to the work of a lot of individuals um, that work to ensure that the Commonwealth tells a more inclusive story um, as it relates to our representatives um, in Statuary Hall. You know, it just kind of gives me chills when I think of all the visitors that come through the U.S. Capitol on a daily, monthly, yearly basis. And for a young student to look up And to see a young person um, staring back at them, um, you know, it's just an amazing moment that will um, inspire a lot of folks that encounter it.
4: You know, she was known to be rather quiet, but that then when she did speak, she was the kind of person her, her fellow students listened to and that she had this vision and and was able to bring uh, her fellow students to believe in that vision, that they could they could do something and and ask for for better schools. Uh, but that they then understood that they needed to to work with adults that they needed to to really work within the system. Uh, So one of the first things they, they did after the strike was go down and meet with the superintendent of schools and make their demands known. Uh, And this of course was a time before social media uh, and, um, and even, you know, there was no newspaper coverage of this event Uh, and that, you know, they, they understood that, that they had a process and a, and a procedure that they, that they had to, to work through. Um, but it's also kind of a moment too and and I always often tell this story of, about when Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson, the NAACP attorneys come to Farmville after Barbara and her her friend Carrie have have called them and written a letter and pleaded for them to come and take their case. And when Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson got here, they fully intended to tell those students to go back to school. They already had another case in the works that they thought would challenge the constitutionality of segregation. And they didn't wanna litigate that question here in the heart of Virginia in 1951. And the student's determination when asked, don't you know that there's truancy laws? And the student said, they can't, they can't put us all in jail. And when asked, could huh. they get their parents' support? And the student said, yes, we can get our parents' support. And that determination swayed Hill and Robinson to take the Prince Edward case. Um, it's it's really this moment of, of historical contingency that, that as many times as I told that story still sends uh, chills down my spine to think about it. Uh, so that, that, you know, The actions that you can take can be very small, but can have tremendous, tremendous ripple effects.
0: I know she gave very few interviews in her lifetime, but I want to play a clip of one of the few times she spoke on camera.
2: We wanted so much here and had so little. And we had uh, talents and abilities here that weren't really being realized. And I thought that was a tragic scene. And that's uh, basically what uh, motivated
0: me to want to see some change take place here. You can see she wasn't a showboat. You can just tell.
4: You know, she's also someone who steps forward and then continues on with her with her life. She goes and graduates high school in Montgomery, uh, goes to Spelman College, becomes a librarian, gets married, becomes a mother. And that, you know, as yet, she, she helps to, to really set in motion a series of events that, that profoundly changed not just uh, what happened here in Prince Edward County and in Virginia, but, uh, but across the nation.
5: I think this is often, you know, I'll say this is a great example of how the baton gets passed to uh, future uh generations of prince edwardians that continue to kind of carry that baton up the hill you know you see the re-emergence of student activism uh during the 1960s when schools are closed here in prince edward um even after schools reopened in 1964 uh, you continue to see strong examples of student activism um, as they continue to advocate for the resources that are being provided uh, within the local school system here in Prince Edward. So, you know, she passes the baton um, and, you know, Prince Edwardians continue to run the race.
0: Do you see echoes of the Moten students in today's student activists? I'm thinking of the climate change activists or the Parkland students on gun control.
5: I think... um, you know, one of the most poignant pieces um, that I read in the wake of the incident uh, with the Parkland students was a piece that was written by uh, L. Francis Skip Griffin, uh, Jr., the son of Reverend L. Francis Griffin, uh, when he really compared that activism uh, to that of the students here at Robert Russell Moton High School. You know, when you think of the things that, you know, the Moten students were thinking about as they made the decision to uh, strike here, um, you know, the Parkland students were wrestling with uh, some of those same questions. And so I do see uh, great examples um, of that activism. Um, I don't think we have to look far um, to see, additional examples when I think of the work that Zyana Bryant, young high school student in Charlottesville that uh, put together the petition uh, to take down the Confederate statues within her community. And, you know, you just kind of see the advocacy that she went through as it relates to that and that, you know, it wasn't an easy journey, uh, but one that she and others saw through to the finish line.
0: I sometimes think about Barbara Johns when I watch the young people protesting in Russia or the young people standing up to the invasion in Ukraine. Sometimes it takes young people to do what the rest of us can't imagine could be done.
4: And young people historically don't have the same uh, things at risk. Right, they don't. They don't have to worry about jobs. They don't have to worry about mortgages. Uh, they don't worry about the the many of the worldly things that adults do that make them think twice before before they step forward. Uh, but they are also, I you know, I I have a thirteen year old niece, and I think about climate change, and and I think about what world she might inherit. Uh, from us. And so you also understand their righteous indignation at what they might inherit.
0: Uh, We depend on it.
4: Right.
5: Yeah. right. I think they're thinking about that world that we're going to leave them. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think they think about, you know, ways in which they can not only make their individual circumstances better, but also how can they make things better for those around them?
0: Well, Cameron Patterson and Larissa Smith, thank you for talking with me and With Good Reason.
5: Thank you so much.
0: It's been a pleasure. Cameron Patterson is executive director of the Robert Russa Moten Museum. Larissa Smith is an historian and provost and vice president for academic affairs at Longwood University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quance, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.